0: I'm going to resist the overwhelming sense of wanting to express how I feel about standing here. Instead, I wanna take the liberty on your behalf to address the Trinity elders who are present with us and just to express our corporate thanks to you men. Thank you for hosting this conference again and again and again and again, but especially for selecting the subject of this year's conference. In all directions that we could have looked, through our theme at looking at Christ, you have helped us to look where we must look, where we need to look, to help us recalibrate our ministerial compass. We have each needed the exhortation to love Christ more. We have needed to see him as the evangelist, the man of prayer, the spirit anointed, scripture filled preacher. And now in our final two sessions, we're going to consider Christ the servant, the minister's model. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians, of course, Philippians chapter 2. I'd just like to read the first eight verses and then move across to verse 19. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. That I also may be encouraged when I know your state, for I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your soul or for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a man with his father, he served me with me in the gospel." As pastors and elders, we are called to minister. And in that, we are fundamentally called to be servants, to serve Christ ultimately, even as we serve his people, as we function as shepherds in the ministry. And as fundamental as the concept of serving is, It seems to me that it's not one of high profile in our day. And so I submit to you, we need to consider Christ, the servant, as the minister's model. Now, the early readers of the New Testament were very well acquainted with servants and slaves. Some estimate that within the Roman Empire in the first century period, there were as many as 50 to maybe 60 million slaves. And and slaves within that context were, were largely regarded as merchandise to be sold and discarded. To be a slave was basically a demeaning thing. However, our Lord Jesus has changed all of that. The function of a servant has surely been forever dignified and elevated as the Lord of glory himself came to serve. And yet his model of service was was very different to the thinking of those disciples. It, It was different to the religion of his generation, different to the culture of that day. It really was countercultural. It was even counter religious culture. I want to remind you just at the outset here in this uh, time, just to introduce the subject briefly of some classic texts of Scripture that speak of this. Firstly, two gospel texts where our Lord himself was conscious of his role as a servant. Luke 22, verse 27, he said, I am among you as he who serves or as one who serves. I'm among you as a diakonos, as as an attendant, as a common table waiter. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so the Lord Jesus Christ himself understood that he was a servant and he is our model in all things. Yes, as an evangelist, yes, as a preacher, yes, as a a man of prayer, and yes, as a servant. He is the servant par excellence. I want to ask you to turn with me, please, to an Old Testament passage, which surely would be the classic Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah and chapter 42, where where God prophesied of the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Behold, God says, my servant whom I uphold. Look at him, focus your gaze, he says, upon this one who is coming into view. And behold, especially in the sense of wonderment. See what an amazing spectacle it is to see this one, the king of the ages, the highest of the high, the maker of heaven and earth, see him in the form of a servant. What an astonishing phenomenon that the Lord of glory should take on such a lowly office. Behold, he says, Wonder at this. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the sovereign ruler of the skies. And he becomes a servant. Behold. The text goes on to say, Behold my servant whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And so God is saying, Christ is my servant. I've chosen him. I love him. I delight in him. And I've given him a work to do. And I've put my spirit upon him so that he might do it. Behold, my servant. And though we're going to look at various aspects of this theme this morning, brethren, here is our primary goal to do as our Lord is directing us, to behold the servant. Of course, the classic text that we read earlier, we need to think about in in our consideration of this theme is Philippians chapter 2. And so if you turn back to that well-known passage, Philippians 2. Just a couple of verses here again. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Taking the form of of a servant, a doulos, a slave, a bondman. He laid aside his heavenly glory in order to serve, to minister Christ, the servant par excellence. And of course, Christ has called us to minister in our generation, to be imitators of this one, to be his ministers, his servants and to imitate him, even as the servant. Let this mind be in you. His mindset must become our mindset. And as I begin here, I just simply ask the question Is it? Is it really? We know these texts, I'm sure we do, but do we know them worked out in our lives and in our ministries? Brothers, I come to you this morning as your servant. I I desire to take the posture of a servant to servants. I simply want to take you to scriptures that encourage you to battle for the basics, to be a servant who is truly humble, gentle, faithful, sacrificial, even like your master, for if we fail here, we fail everywhere in ministry. And so in this session, I I want us to deal with three things. We'll look at the challenge we face, then the calling we have, and then thirdly, the motive we need. And then in our next section we'll look more uh, our next session, we'll look more at our Lord Jesus in action, in the upper room in John 13, seeing him serving his disciples. But firstly, now consider with me the challenge we face. Is it not clear to all of us that this subject of being servants is in large measure out of fashion? in our day. And so I want to ask you to think of the challenge we face from a a trio of influence that can pull us away from Christ's pattern. Three things. And the first aspect of this trio is what I'm calling, more broadly firstly, the cultural tendency. Make no mistake, our culture has a bigger influence upon us and our people than often we can gauge. And the disciples of our Lord had been influenced in some degree by their cultural tendency. For instance, when Mrs. Zebedee went to see Jesus seeking the future promotion of her boys... Jesus exposed that whole approach as simply thinking like the world. That story is in Matthew chapter 20. You might want to turn there just briefly with me in Matthew chapter 20. And it's in verse 20 where this whole scene is introduced to us. We don't have time to read it, but you will remember that situation. I'm simply calling her Mrs. Zebedee. We jump down to Jesus' reaction to what she put to Jesus, and we'll look at verse 25. But Jesus called them, his disciples, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And so one way that we can understand this is that Jesus is saying here that what he's directing is not just, of course, for the Zebedees. In verse 24, we see that the, the other 10 were dirty with James and John. Because it seems that they too were thinking the same way. My point is that the cultural tendency had invaded their minds. And what do we see in the world's culture today? Well, nothing has changed in this regard. The world loves self-promotion. Being the boss... Over others, clamouring for success, the desire to be first, to to achieve greatness. Uh, We heard it, I think it was on the evening of the Lord's Day. Me, 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 me. Pushing aside the ten, clamouring over others on the way to the top. It is contrary to Christ. Verse 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And so firstly, we have the cultural tendency in this trio of influence that will pull us away from the pattern of Christ. The second is what I'm calling the contemporary ministry. You go into any standard Christian bookstore, I would imagine it's the same here as it is in my own country. That is the standard Christian bookstore of contemporary Christianity. And you go looking for any type of book that you're hoping will help you to know how to become a servant. Or just Bible teaching on serving. It would be like finding the proverbial needle in a haystack. We live in the day of the celebrity, the celebrity preacher. Oh, you went to a conference this week, Pastor? Nice. Who were the preachers? Gordon, who? <laughs> Troy, who? never heard of them yes even re- reformed circles have their celebrities and everyone's clamoring to be near them he's the man it all seems miles away from a humble servant celebrity preachers. I ask you men, what is that? And where has that influence come from? Is that of the spirit? Seems to me it's of the spirit of the world. It seems that ministry today is more and more about a platform. It's about a spotlight. It's about ministry success achieved by a self-promotion. Being seen to be successful. Look at me. Check out my ministerial accomplishments. And we all can fall into that. There is much in contemporary ministry where the focus is contrary to Christ's model of humble service. What did God say in Isaiah 42 about his servant in whom his soul delights? Well, in verse 2, he says, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. Our language, could I just put it this way? Christ didn't blow his own trumpet. In contrast to a worldly conqueror who loudly proclaimed his exploits as the crowded streets applauded him. In contrast to that, Messiah wasn't in the streets drawing attention to himself. Messiah will go quietly about his business unthreatening and without self-promotion. You have a look in Matthew chapter 12 and you see how Matthew quotes this text in Isaiah 42 to help us understand why Jesus withdrew from the crowd. Paul echoes this perspective in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 5 when he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, your doulos, for for Jesus' sake, not for our sake, but for his sake, for him. This self-publicity, self-promotion in ministry It's really not some modern ministry problem. Paul faced it in the first century. If we turn back to that passage in Philippians chapter 2, but look further down that chapter, Paul speaks of Timothy. And in verse 20, he says, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your soul. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. That word care there is the same word in Matthew 6.35 for worry or anxious. Here's Timothy, Paul says, he is preoccupied with the spiritual needs, the spiritual state of the sheep. He's not pursuing his own gain. In Paul's day, Timothy was the exception. That's why he's using him as the example. Timothy stands out. Paul went so far as to say, there's no one like him who cares for your state. Yes, there's many others who are just seeking themselves. In verse 22, he says, but you know his proven character that as a man with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Another biblical example where these issues are underscored is surely in the Old Testament with Ezekiel. Who speaks about those in his own day in chapter 34 in that uh, analogy of shepherds? And he says, Woe to the shepherds who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. Thinking that the sheep are there for our benefit that the sheep become something like a platform for us to stand on, that ministry is about me. This is not just a modern ministry problem. When so-called servants become so important in their own eyes, thinking that the people are there To serve his end. What good is his ministry? It's no longer service. Now, we may not be those who are accumulating private jets, but the attitude can creep into our hearts. And we can begin to think that that the people are here to serve me, rather that I am here to serve the people. And as we'll see, the good shepherd, he's, he's the model servant shepherd because his concern is all for the sheep. And so we have the contemporary ministry. And the third of these trio of opposition that we have to fight, is what I'm simply calling, as we bring it closer to home, our carnal propensity. Our carnal propensity. And and here really is where our battle mainly is. It's against our own fleshly propensity to be selfish. And once more, Philippians 2, it, it, it directly addresses this issue, doesn't it? Back up in the chapter, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Nothing. And that can sneak up on us. Ambition in ministry, the spirit of selfishness can so easily rise in our own hearts. But we want to pursue our own interests, doing things for our own benefit. And the blinkers of self can blind us even to the interests of those that we are there to serve. But the mindset of Christ calls us the very opposite direction verse 5 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus it is to deny self it is to die to self verse 8 he became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross and by the power of the spirit we must be putting the propensity to pride and prominence to death those things They are enemies, could we call them, of the attitude of humble service. Of course, for some, it's the propensity to laziness in the ministry, like shortcuts to sermon preparation, like asking some Are there any here who have been tempted to ask AI, artificial intelligence, to just cut a few corners to do your thinking for you? A lazy servant. What an oxymoron. Ministerial laziness, it can spring up within us. And of course, we know this, there is a temptation for us because we are generally by ourselves, unsupervised, so we think. And yet everyone knew in the first century, a servant must be willing to work hard, must be willing even to work at menial, tedious to us. The challenge we face. We must be honest about this trio of influence. We must resist it. We must overcome it. Now, of course, all Christians face these very things. But as gospel ministers, God calls us to give ourselves to serve his flock. And even in this, we are, we are, we are to lead our flocks by example that we are to be, as it were, the tangible uh, expression of this so that they might know how to live as servants themselves. The challenge we face. Now, secondly, let's consider what I'm calling. The calling we have. The calling we have. Thomas Goodwin said, God had but one sum. And he made him a minister. He had but one son and he made him a minister. Being a minister of Christ is an amazing privilege. And you know, Paul was still staggered, staggered by this very concept after 30 years of ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry, giving me this service, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a prosecutor, a persecutor, of me, and an insolent man. And so if God only had one son and he made him a minister, who are we? To serve in the office for but one day. No matter how long it has been that we might have labored in this high calling, may none of us regard it as our right. The calling we have. What a a high honour to give our own energies to Christ and to serve his people. And those men who are here who have in recent days stepped back from that responsibility. Those years were not wasted. What an honour some of you had to serve for decades. And brothers, no matter how tough it gets, what a high calling we have. May we never grow to resent this privilege. Now ministerial knockbacks, setbacks, disappointments, they can tend to turn us in on ourselves. And yet we are so privileged. Again and again, Paul mentions this calling as a minister or as a servant. He repeats it again and again. It's like he's never really settled with this issue. Specimen passages, and you know them, Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a doulos of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 5, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers... 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. And that is that, that, that word that has this idea of underservant, which originally referred to those under rowers, indicating those men who, who rode at that bottom tier of the ship, the, those ones who were the most menial, the most despised. The term. That Paul uses here came to refer to subordinates of any sort, those under authority. And so Paul and his ministerial colleagues saw themselves as subordinates of Christ and stewards. What an honour that they would be that. They understood that they were ones also who were accountable to care for what God had entrusted to them. The honour of such service. 2 Corinthians 3.6 who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Ephesians 3.5 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God's undeserved favour called me to be a minister of the gospel as one less than the least of all the saints. Called to serve, but how? How are we to serve? And it's one thing to look at these other examples, but our tension needs to primarily be on Christ the servant. He's the minister's model. Often when someone paints a portrait and you compare that that artwork, with the uh, original person. And, and you look at what was done and who had ears, you, you can generally see the, the resemblance. And by a, a very accomplished artist, it, 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 it's, it's tremendous, but it's not quite the same. And occasionally, there comes along an exceptional artist who's been able, it seems, to perfectly portray their subject. Well, men, the Holy Spirit provides for us in the Word of God such a portrait, the perfect portrait of a servant. And he is the one that, that we are to imitate in our service. Legend has it, when Oliver Cromwell was, was having his portrait done, His artist was tempted to remove the facial warts as he painted him. And Cromwell's response was was memorable. He said, you shall paint me warts and all. Well, the wonderful thing about the portrait that lies before us in our Bibles is that the subject, the Lord Jesus Christ, had no blemish. No wart. And the Spirit has, has given to us in his inerrant word a perfect portrait of the perfect servant. And there are many areas of his life in ministry which we can focus on, as we have been, some of them this week. But I want to use the rest of our time this morning to concentrate on our Lord in action, in the upper room, washing his disciples' feet. Turn with me then, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 13, as we now consider, thirdly, the motive we need. The motive we need. John chapter 13, John introduces this whole scene, which is where we'll just touch on here before our break. John 13, verse 1, we're thinking of the motive. We need. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus had a love for his own, he loved them to the end, he loved them to the uttermost. These statements here in this opening section, I think, apply to all that's coming in the entire, this next section in John's Gospel. But that also includes this scene here in John chapter 13 of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It was love that drove our Lord. It was his love, yes, ultimately, for his father that moved him to leave heaven and humble himself, to come in the likeness of men, to be found in the appearance of men. But here, as John tells us, it was love for his own. Love for his sheep that he laid down his life and then took it up again. He loved his own. From heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. He loved his own to the end. And here specifically, John says, he loved his own who were in the world. Love. Love is the motive for him to go and to pick up the towel and to pick up the ball. And so all I want to do at the moment here in this opening little section that John is beginning to show us what's before us is it's like John writes over the doorway of entrance into the upper room, love. This is why he served so. He loved them. Brothers, this is the motive We need love. Yes, love for God. Love for Christ. We heard about that a couple of days ago. That love for Christ constraining us, compelling us. But here it's love for his own. Love for God's sheep as his under-shepherds. Love for their souls. Love for them. This is surely the motive that all of us need and where to our shame we can so easily get off track. Please note, this is not love for the ministry. That trap's easy to fall into. This is not like Diotrephes. He had a love of authority. He had a love of preeminence. This is not love of attention in the role. This is not love of influence. This is not love of prominence like James and John. If you go back in chapter 12, verse 43, John has already said about certain people that they love the praise of men more than the praise of Of God, Jewish religious men who loved the praise of men. Their motive, they had a motive. But their motive was about them in the end. They loved being leaders of the people because they loved to hear the people praise them. This was one of the main features of the contemporary scene in the days of Christ. It's still with us today. You see, all of those loves are so closely connected to the ministry and they're all traps and they are all far, far away from what motivated Jesus. You see, even If we are not loved in return, our motive is to love those we serve. Jesus wasn't exactly knocked over with the disciples' love in the upper room, was he? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I'll very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, The less I am loved. The motive we need for ministerial service is stated clearly by John at the end of verse 1 here. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It is possible to serve others, to do it under excellence. To do it with all your energy, to do it sacrificially, to do it with great giftedness, to do it with deep insights, to do it with with vast knowledge, but to lack the very heart of love. And we know this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. We know this. Paul clarifies this at the very opening of the chapter on love, doesn't he? Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. We might serve God with great eloquence in the pulpit, with with. Teaching that has deep insights, and we might deliver compelling sermons, but without love, our words are like the crash bang racket of Bart's cowbell. (laughs) Picture it now, men. You know the sound, you and your pulpit. Waxing eloquent. Without love, you're walking up and down the rows of those pews, clanging his cowbell. Verse 2. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love... I am nothing. And so what is all our deep doctrinal knowledge that that just wows our hearers if we have no love? I'm nothing. And even though people may marvel at what we might call ministerial mountains are being moved and we achieve incredible things, Despite all of our giftedness and accomplishments, if love is absent, I'm nothing. I've done nothing. My ministry will account for nothing. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Yes, My service might be so giving, I might run myself into the ground in ministry. But no love profits me nothing. Man, Jesus didn't just do the right thing in the upper room or even the next day simply because it was the right thing to do. It wasn't mere duty. He was motivated by love. He loved his own to the end. And and this love that John mentions as he introduces the upper room scene, Jesus, of course, repeats this even in that upper room in John 13 and verse 34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you. To you men, you are to love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. They were to look sideways. I'm to love him, and I'm to love him, and I'm to love him. In chapter 15, we know these texts, but think of this in the context. Matthew 15, 12, this is... My commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And surely we must draw the line here and simply ask the question, do I truly, truly love my people? Do you? We'll see what John writes over the doorway of the upper room. He loved his own to the end. It's possible that we can try to measure our ministries by using the wrong standard. Doctrinal orthodoxy. I mean, reformed pastors, that, that can be almost everything for us. We might use numerical growth. I mean, all those new people, all those new people you have, well, that might actually not be the right standard to use to measure your ministry recently. Others might be tempted to use the smallness of their church. Well, I mean, it shows how faithful we are, right? Or maybe. Or maybe not. We, we could be tempted to, to measure our ministries by the number of ministries we have, or, or church finance, or all of these things. They do indicate something. But here's the motive that John underscores with Jesus it's the motive we need motivated. By love. Christ, the servant, the the minister's model, was motivated by love. Jesus, pardon me, John shows us his love for those he serves. And he shows us that, John does, before we, could I say, go with him into the upper room in the coming verses in this narrative. And so we're going to come back to our final session after our break. And with the Lord's help, we're going to look through this upper room door and see inside and see Jesus the servant. In gentle, humble, loving action. Let's pray. Almighty God, you know our hearts and we tremble. You see us through and through. We do cry out to you that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our hypocrisy in this very area. Forgive us for our coldness, our selfishness. and Lord, our lack of love. And come by your Spirit, so fill us, we pray, that in these very ways that we have seen, that we would be more like our Savior, and that we would bring you honour even as we seek to serve you. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.